This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kempf and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes. My name is Seb. And my name's Al. This podcast is about transformative moments in the classroom. We believe that these moments, when we bring our classrooms to life, can often be achieved by making small changes that are easy to adopt. And that's our focus. Small things communicated in simple ways by great teachers who know that these practices make a difference to their students. So the idea is that you listen to these great teachers, reflect on their practices, what they have to say, and think about whether it might work for your own classroom. And because we know our listeners are busy people who are also time poor, we always want to communicate these lessons in a jargon-free way, which is why we have our jargon-free buzzer. No, no, no! And we hit this when we hear those buzzwords that might be more at home in a teaching committee or a faculty meeting. Seb, shall we introduce this week's guest? With absolute pleasure. Because our guest today is Emeritus Laureate Professor John Hattie. In his career, John has taught many students at the University of Queensland, but he has also studied students. In fact, he has studied more than 300 million of them from around the globe in what has become the world's largest evidence-based study of factors that outline what improves student learning. And his findings are equally impressive as they are eye-opening, inviting us to rethink what we do in our classrooms. John, welcome. Pleasure to be with you, Seb and Al. I want to talk a little bit about those uh, teaching committees and faculty meetings, if we can, John, because often as teachers, we're told a lot of things about what supposedly works in our classroom. We get told about so many factors that we have to pay attention to. But you've done the hard yards to work out actually what's meaningful and what's not. So our first question is, you know, what factors should we be listening to when it comes to the classroom? Well, here's the good news. That co- those committees are right because everything works. And that was probably the most stunning finding of the lot across those 300 million kids is that with very few exceptions, you can find evidence for almost every teaching method, every curriculum, everything we do. That really preaches to the notion that we need to be a lot smarter. Surely we want to up the ante. We want to increase it a hang of a lot more than just saying, hey, we can improve student learning. And that's what this work is about, changing the discussion from what works to what works best. And you find things, for example, like structural things like the size of the class, how many students are in it, which curricular area it is, hardly matters. And here's one that always upsets people, nor does the student. What works best, works best regardless of whether the students in physics, phys ed, music, maths, whether they're five-year-olds, 20-year-olds, whether they're incredibly bright or whether they're struggling. It's the same factors that make the big difference to student learning. Technology. We've been going for 50 years claiming technology is the revolution. It's still coming. It's not had the big effect we expected to have. The biggest effects by a long way, come back to the teacher. Let me go back to the student for a moment. Bright students last year tend to be bright students next year and so on. So there is a kind of long-term prior performance. So knowing what the student brings to the classroom in terms of their prior performance is pretty important. But that again is a function of the skill of the teacher to do that and modify their instruction, depending what the students know already. One of the studies showed that uh, close to 40 to 50% of everything taught in every classroom the students know already. 
we tend to make the stuff a bit easy at times, not appropriately challenging. And so what we would like to do, obviously, is to focus in on some of those factors that make the biggest difference in terms of improving, improving uh, student learning. And uh, the first one I would like you to reflect a bit more upon and explain to us, uh, John, is you allocate one of the key factors in the role of the teacher, and in particular what you say, what a teacher thinks and what a teacher does. What do you mean by that and why is that so central? It is the teacher, but you're right. We've got to be a bit careful here because it's not so much what they do. And going back to your teaching committees, Al, we spend a lot of time in those teaching committees and uh, talking about the best way to teach. You go into the toolbox, there's so much there and everyone has their pet way of teaching. That's not what matters. What matters is how you think. It's the thinking process. For example, we know from classroom observation work right through from high school, tertiary studies, that 80 to 90 percent of the focus is about the content, the facts, the knowledge, the knowing that. And there's a conspiracy. Students above average want more content because that's the game they're good at. Despite what we say, of course, we say that you know, we want you to be a thinker of peace studies. We want you to be an historian. Evaluate what actually happens in the classroom. It is a content-based notion. And so teachers who are able to have the right proportion of that content-based and the deeper-based and know when it's the right time to introduce the deeper after the students have sufficient content. Like we have so many methods like, here's the buzzer, Problem-based learning, flip learning, all that oh, stuff. Flip yeah. throwing will get you there every time. <laughs> yeah, we have all that lovely jargon. It's not as simple as that. It's a matter of when you introduce some notions rather than others. And then it's those moment-by-moment decisions that teachers make to do this rather than that, to focus on this student rather than that student, to switch from the surface to the deep. That's what really matters. And then look at the moment, we're calling that how teachers make evaluative decisions, how they make evaluative judgments to seek information back from the students about how successful they were in their teaching. And so that's a, quite a different way of thinking about the teacher. Yes, we want them to have all those methods that you talk about in those committees, but it's those decisions we make, those knowing how to give good feedback in the class on assessments. And it's that way of thinking. And quite frankly, like COVID's shown us dramatically that expertise is all around it's so powerful and that's what we need to focus on and we need people like you and podcasts like this to stand up and say we esteem those teachers who have those skills so when we when we think about that doing and that craft of teaching john if you like in the in the capacity to move through different gears and have these different moments if there's someone listening out there that may be thinking about teaching their course for the first time What, what, what do we say to them in terms of developing that kind of craft? The thing I'd start with there is clarity. Being clear to the students. Like so often the students sit there trying to guess what you really mean. Let's make it easy for them. Let's tell them up front. What does it mean to be successful in this course? Give them some worked examples of, for instance, last year's students' assignments. Now you say, wait a moment, they're cheating. No, you're making it clear what you value because what they're trying to work out is not just the material that you are conveying to them, but when's good, good enough? How do I go from getting a C to a B, from a B to an A? 
And so how do we make that as instructors more clear to the students about what it is we value? And so giving them worked examples, giving them their good feedback, going through examples in multiple ways, hearing how they, the students, are interpreting. Often what we like to do, particularly as new instructors at universities, is stand up front and talk for an hour. You haven't a clue what's going on in their brains. And it's all about what's going on in their mind. I call my work visible learning because I want that learning to become more visible to the teacher. So that's what I'd focus on if I was a brand new teacher. How do I understand what's happening? Sometimes I might want to call some students into my office and say, tell me how you, what's your understanding by this course? So you could hear how you are as a teacher. And I think that brings us to yet another of those factors that is very high up on the list of things that really have a big positive influence on uh, student learning. That is feedback. Feedback, but feedback in a different way from how I think the layperson or perhaps the ordinary lecturer and educator thinks about it. Feedback in all its guises, on average, pretty high effect. A third of feedback we give to students is negative. So we've got to be smart, as you say, Sam, about what we mean by feedback. And a lot of the work we've been doing in the past is looking at how teachers give feedback. And the big message there is that feedback is about where to next, helping the students about where they go next. Yes, it's based on correct, incorrect, do more here, don't do more there. But the most important thing is understanding the feedback as the student is interpreting it. Was it heard, was it understood, and was it actionable? And so think of feedback from the student reading this. And like we've just finished a, a major study with three or 4,000 students who had computerized feedback at, at university levels after a first piece of work, got the feedback, put it in again. Overwhelmingly, feedback that made the difference was telling the students where they go next, how they get better. And when you ask students, you could sit there with a whole page of your written comments and say to the students, "What? tell me about the feedback you got. And they look you in the eyes and say, I got none. If there's nowhere to next feedback, they say they didn't get it. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with all that other kind of feedback. But if there's nowhere to next, it hardly has an impact. This is an absolutely excellent point, which I try and incorporate. I, I've never used the word actionable but if, if my tutors and, and me myself aren't talking about the next assessment and the feedback they get, then we're doing it wrong. It doesn't help to say, you should have said more of this, you should have said more of that. It has to be for next time and always finishing with that for next time component. And John, on the feedback as well, one of the things I find really striking, at least surprised me, is I've seen feedback, I've understood feedback to literally mean it is us teachers giving feedback to the students. And in a way, you also say we need to actually turn this on its head, that it is actually feedback is not us giving students our comments, but to see assignments that students write in how they write it as feedback back to us. Look, if you walk into a classroom, your job is to evaluate the impact that you're having on your students. How could you possibly do that if you're not listening to them? Listening to them either through the work they do, listen to the questions they ask, the dialogues they have, and the biggest power to improve teaching is to get that feedback about what you taught successfully, what you didn't teach successfully, who you taught successfully and who you didn't teach successfully, and how much of a gain you've made on each of those students. 
And if you're aware for that, if you're listening for that, you're going to be a great teacher. How do you do that, John? I mean, obviously we have course evaluations and teaching evaluations and we know the many problems with them. They're kind of uh, ex-post, aren't they? The the horse is bolted by the time we get them back. That's probably one. But how do you you go about it in practical terms? It's that mindset again, Al. It's about you and the way you think when you walk into a class saying, my job here today is to evaluate my impact. Of course, you've got to get across the content of the material and the deeper understanding and the conceptual questions and all that stuff. Sometimes stop talking, shut up and listen. And I think that's really what I want to say, particularly at the tertiary level. Privilege those students. Like you, you also hear some academics say, oh, but I only want to hear the students who are really bright on what they say. Well, no, we're responsible for everybody who walks into the classroom and hearing different views. And our job is to add value to every one of those students. Now, if they don't do the work and come up to the standard, that's also your job in terms of making that summative judgment. But during the actual classes themselves, I think we need to create more space for listening. And again, COVID was a great example where it was hard to stand up and lecture for a whole hour. We looked back at the comments in the Zoom chat room. We got students talking to each other. And hey, sometimes it's quite sobering to like, I know, for example, that when I was teaching, I could teach a class, I could ask the students a question, they'd give an answer. I'd say, yes, great. They answered it correctly. So they all understood and then sometimes I would deliberately ask a student a question that I knew they'd get wrong, so I had the chance to wax lyrical and say wonderful things. I never stopped and listened to the effect of my teaching. I never put things in place where I asked them, for example, every now and then to do a, a pop quiz or a, a write down three or four points. I looked at their outlines. I had dialogue and conversation with them. That's what makes great teaching. Mm-hmm. It's that balance of transmitting what we want to transmit and hearing back how we transmitted it enough we got across the messages we wanted to get across. There's one other factor, and there's so many, because I think you look overall across all these um, meta studies you have done across 40 to 50 different factors here, but in terms of the, the top ones that you know we say that we're interested in that make the biggest difference, one that is really fascinating is interpersonal relationships, the, f- the important factor of respect. If you look at the employment rate of our graduates, and you can name whether it be maths or music, you know, phys ed, phys ed, phys ed or physics, over the last 50 years, the trend has been dramatic. Students who have high content area and high social skills, respect for others, team playing, social communication are very employable. No surprise, those who have low content and low social skills are not, the middle. Those students who have lower content and higher social skills, the employment rate is up. Those who have higher content and lower social skills, their employment rate is down. Employers are saying loudly and clearly, if they don't have enough of law or peace studies or education, we can actually train them in the content. But if they aren't able to work in teams, translate and communicate, it's hard for us to do it so that we don't want them. So I ask you, to what degree in your courses do you have the students working together? Do you have assignments which are collective assignments which you assess? Because do you assess for their, the group work, the individual contribution and to the group? Because that's what the employers are asking for. So my argument is if you don't develop that respect for others and respect for self, that collective notion of t- students working together, 
Yes, students aren't very employable. Now remember, I want both. I want the content and the high social skills. A key theme here, John, is, is that's coming out, and that's it's really quite revelatory, the content point, is that we have to really get away from this notion of content is king. That's what you keep saying, isn't it? This is the, the essence, the sage on the stage is the content uh, teacher, the content lecturer, but we need to be respecting all these other dimensions which are just as important. I'm greedy. I want both. I'm not going to get into this polarisation that's content or deep ideas. You know, I, I often hear the argument, well, they don't need to know content, it's all on the internet. You can't think, you can't relate, you can't problem solve if you don't have content, but it's both. And I'm sure we all get up and tell our students that we want them to think deeply. Well, watch what we actually do in the class. Like sometimes take a transcript or a video of your class and code it for content and you'll find it. It is king, but that's not what we necessarily value. So back at the beginning, we were talking about getting that proportion right of what content. And sometimes we have to stop teaching more content to create space for the deep. Now, I think it's simple, guys. When you do an assignment, ask two questions. One about the content, and one about how you relate the content. It makes the feedback easy, it makes the students more clear, it makes you better understanding about whether you've got across the right amount of material. Have two success criteria for every class you teach. So I want both, but I think it's getting that proportion right. Because mm. we have to go through the content, don't we, to get to those <laughs> yeah. other things, because that's what we know and what we're trained in is the content. Hmm. No, I don't agree with you there. You're trained in the content, but you're also trained, and that's why you're academics, in the relating of that idea. Mm. You made decisions that this content's more important than that content. Mm. That's one of your major attributes for your students. Being clear to students about wanting both, I think is pretty important. John, I'd like to hearken back to the earlier question. So one of the factors that you say is so important is the factor of respect and in particular the interpersonal relationships. And here I'm talking about respect and that relationship between the teacher and the student. So why is respect so important for us to understand as educators or as teachers? Why does it make such a big difference? So if you were going to your, as a student, you were going to your next class and you had this belief that this teacher didn't care a damn about you you are immaterial. I bet you won't be as better, a good as learner. You won't be listening because you're not going to say, well, whatever I say, they're going to diss me, whatever. So you're almost turned off. So no matter how brilliant that teacher is, if they haven't shown that they respect you as a learner, it's going to make the impact you have as a teacher much less. Now, there are lots of ways you can demonstrate that as a learner. And being a listener, oh my gosh, what better form of respect in the world than to have someone not only listen to you, but demonstrate they've listened to you. And that's the essence of respect. And there are lots of ways we can listen in our classrooms. But I want to go, I want to add something there. Great teachers go a step further and they build respect amongst students because we learn so much from other students in our class, outside our classes. And building those relationships is pretty powerful. It's the essence of being a great teacher. The idea of building collective relations built on uh, uh, respect but which also have that practical and dare I say no. transferable skills attached to them John this has been extremely wonderful and insightful um, we could talk for another few hours I think what is so inspiring is to see how 
the factors that we tend to always assume make the biggest difference might not be the ones that have the biggest effect on our students and doesn't don't necessarily help improve their learning. But we have by looking at feedback, looking at respect, looking at various small number of factors here, I think gotten an insight into how we perhaps need to think differently how we act as teachers. But we've also been challenged about what I like about John is he's, he's challenging us to say, what do you do and how do you think and can you do it better? And underneath that challenge, there's also some practical takeaways. I really like the idea of putting success on the table right at the start of a course and saying, look at, look at what we can do. Look at these examples. That's a wonderful way to open a course. And I really like the idea of actionable. I like, I'm going to steal that phrase and really talk about actionable, uh, actionable feedback and, of course, listening to. Think of the instructors you had that really made a difference to you. I would suggest there's two reasons. One, either those instructors saw something in you you didn't see in yourself. They raised the expectations. But every one of them, I would argue, had passion. They had a passion that you got turned on to their subject. And oh my goodness, you can see that absolutely clearly when you walk into the class. So that's the other one I'd add to this, this um, list of main ideas. Show your passion when you're as a teacher. If you don't love your subject, they're not going to. And that's a big thing for you and I, isn't it? Showing, uh, showing the passion has to be there. I'm often accused of being a Scottish trade unionist in terms of style just because I get worked up, if not in content, <laughs> and it, it suits me quite well. I think that's a very appropriate self-confession type note from Al to actually nicely wrap things up here. Um, if you tuned in and you enjoyed what you heard, you can find John Hattie and the work he's doing, obviously, by uh, Googling for him online. You can find us on all sorts of social media Thanks for your company and we look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah.